Imagine you've been working long hours into the evening all week, and the entire week you've been looking forward to a, a nice, quiet meal, just the two of you at a classy little restaurant in town. And you walk in, and the host welcomes you, and you, you walks you over to just the perfect little table toward the back of the front dining room. The white linen is perfectly pressed. The light is sort of dim. There's quiet music surrounding you. There's a real wax candle in the little candle holder on the table. Uh, it's flickering, and uh, there's a vase with a, a single yellow rose drooping out the side. And as you settle into your seat, he hands you your menu. He explains to you the amazing options that day. Uh, he takes your drink order. The busboy, you know, fills your water glass, and they walk away. And right as you start perusing the menu, you hear laughter coming from the dining room in back. It's not the quiet sort of giggle, but that really obnoxious laughter that sends chills down your spine. You hear snorting and honking and clapping, and the sound is building louder and louder, and you hear the rustle of silverware and the clinking of glasses, and it grows from a buzz to an all-out commotion. Someone is stomping his feet on the wood floor in that back room, and the building seems to shake with each stomp. It's insane. People are talking over each other back there, getting louder by the minute, and the waiter and the host are nowhere to be seen, and you can't even hear the person in front of you because of all the whooping and shouting coming from the other room. You notice bits of carrot fling in from the other room across your room, followed by another riotous uproar. You grit your teeth. You set down your menu. All I wanted was a nice quiet dinner, just the two of us. I'll never enjoy my escargot de Bourgogne with this going on. You think, I'm going to go tell these people to keep it down. And so you get up and you walk over to the passageway into the next dining room. And as you enter, you see O.J. Simpson and Rod Blagojevich chugging a bottle of single malt scotch. Ariana Grande is to one side with a donut in her mouth saying something about America to a former head of state who will remain unnamed. You see Bill Cosby is at the other end trying to tell jokes and carrying around a handful of carrots. Ellen DeGeneres has her back to you with her wife, Portia. Kim Kardashian is, rec is reclining on top of the dining table wearing considerably less fabric than one might expect in a nice restaurant. Caitlyn Jenner and Kylie are there, too. Caitlyn is stomping her feet, laughing, shaking the building shake. You vaguely recognize a former president of one of Latin America's poorer republics. And there is Will Smith slapping someone on the back. Meanwhile, Elon Musk and Kevin Spacey are at opposite ends of the table, arguing with each other. There are probably another dozen or two dozen people you don't recognize in that room, but you can recognize that they are not in any way dressed for a fine restaurant. What some of them are wearing would be too revealing for some beaches. 
There's a really loud lady standing atop one chair making some kind of gesture to someone across the other table. Another woman is sitting next to the no smoking sign using an empty martini glass as an ashtray. A cloud of smoke billowing out of her mouth like she's puffed the magic dragon. And then this balding guy with a handlebar mustache is walking toward you, obviously high on something, and he's wearing leather chaps. He starts to turn around. You look away. You don't know whether to call the police or the New York Times. You think, who are these people? What could possibly bring together so motley a crew? These aren't just famous people. These are infamous, and they've just ruined your meal. It's an unlikely scene for St. Louis. But we're going to look at a couple unlikely scenes in first century Palestine, ones that actually happened. Uh, once, as Jesus was beginning to call his very first disciples, it's Luke 5. I'm going to begin in verse 1. This is the gospel of our Lord. One day, as Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, that's the Sea of Galilee, with the people crowding around him and listening to the word of God, he saw at the water's edge two boats left there by the fishermen who were washing their nets. He got into one of the the one belonging to Simon, and asked him to put out a little from shore. And then he sat down and taught the people from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into deep water and let down the nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, We've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything, but because you say so, I will let down the nets. When they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. And so they signaled their partners in from the other boat to come and help them. And they came and they filled both boats so full that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man, for he, had all his, he and all his companions were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken, and so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. When Jesus said, then Jesus said to Simon, Don't be afraid. From now on, you will catch men. So they pulled their boats up on shore, left everything, and followed him. While Jesus was in a man came along who was covered with leprosy. When he saw Jesus, he fell face to the ground, and he begged him, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. Then Jesus ordered him, don't tell anyone but go, show yourself to the priest and offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. Yet the news about him spread all the more so that crowds of people came to hear him and to be healed of their sicknesses. But Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. What do we see here? First, we see that Jesus has given his people, his church, a mission to take part in his rescue of humanity. Look at what he says to Peter. He says, from now on, I will make you a fisher of other human beings. 
That's, that's a, a clear call to Peter, but it wasn't just to Peter. James and John realized at the moment that it applied to them too. Peter and all his companions, we read, were astonished catch of fish they had taken. So, uh, 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 and so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, his partners. Then Jesus said to Simon, don't be afraid. From now on, you will catch men. So they, meaning all of them, pulled their boats up on the shore, left everything, and followed him because they understood that this wasn't just for Peter. It was for all who would follow Jesus. It's something that Jesus makes clear at the end of Matthew's gospel and what we call the Great Commission, where, where Jesus commissions his church with one primary task, one mission, one goal, to, 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 to baptize the nations, you know, going to them, teaching them, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. It's the mission of God for all of his church, for all of us. So St. Paul himself emphasized how every believer plays a part in this mission. We're a missionary people, as Peter himself would later emphasize the same Peter who's being called here later in life would write a letter to the churches in which he says, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God in order that you may declare the praises of called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. We're a people who are saved in order to call the praise of God before all the nations. And we're called then to be a family of rescuers engaged in Jesus' mission to save the nations. This means that everything we do as a church and everything we do as individuals ultimately should be about the gospel, uh, driven by that, with that front and the message of salvation in Jesus, because that makes mission central to all we do. You know, if you were to go open a restaurant, you probably wouldn't have a second dining room with all those people in it, but if you were to open a restaurant, you would think through very carefully what you want culture of that restaurant to look and feel like. Everything down to the decor, the lighting, the front door, how you would get in, whether there'd be a station there with somebody greeting you, how they would communicate that, how they would take you to your, to your table and seat you, whether or not they would, you know, uh, 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 hand you your, your, your cloth nap to put over it, whether they're going to open the wine bottle for you and pour you a little bit and let you sniff it, what's going to be on the menu, how, uh, how staff are going to be visible and present without being overbearing because you're going to have a vision for that restaurant that is going to drive everything. You know the experience you want your client to have, and it drives every decision. And that's a restaurant that knows its mission. Jesus gave us, who know him, a mission. And everything we do ultimately is to be shaped by that mission, to go into all the world and tell them of Jesus and to hear where he's placed us as a missionary people in St. Louis, to be on mission with Jesus, to bend it to that mission so that it defines the culture of a place and of a people. That's a gospel culture which means that it's also a missional culture on mission with our Lord who's on mission to rescue humanity. My prayer for every one of you is that this would capture your own heart and that you would be able to wake up every day and say, Lord Jesus, here I am reporting to duty to do your will. How can I represent you well? You know, it means that when somebody, when you're pulling out, you know, going down to Olympia for some kebabs and and the Dolmas, which are amazing, uh, and, and you get halfway there and you get rear-ended right in front of Amico, um, you know, you 
pull over to the other side, the other person pulls over to the other side, and you ask, Jesus, what do you want here, Lord? And instead of saying, oh my gosh, how am I going to pay for this? Oh my gosh, is my insurance going to cancel me? Oh my gosh, I'm going to... Just, no, the Lord is in, in charge. He has placed you on a mission field. That is a mission field. And there's a person in the car behind you that just rear-ended you and is probably freaking out, and that is your opportunity to go up to them and say, hey, are you okay? All right, well, while we, while we wait for the police to come, you know, I'm, I'm a Jesus follower, and you seem pretty shaken up. Can I pray for you right now? And they're probably going to be, okay. <laughs> you know, that's opportunity, always an opportunity to be on mission wherever we are. And that kind of being on mission can be kind of scary. You know, for some, that means a financial risk. You know, Peter, James, and John were business partners. They had a, uh, well, they had just, their, their, their fishing business had just become incredibly successful. They just had the biggest catch of their, their lives. Business was, was looking up. And then Jesus says, follow me, and they do so. And they, leave, they left everything. They left their business. They left their, 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 their cash flow. They lost everything to follow Jesus. They would spend the rest of their lives literally dependent on the giving of other Christians. And they would have to trust God would take care of them. I remember me as a young Christian learning to follow Jesus, and, and I remember reading a booklet about tithing and, uh, and how Jesus said that, um, you know, uh, 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 these things you ought to have done without neglecting other things. And, and, and at that point, I, my only income was $200 a month to, for food and haircuts and gas and everything, and uh, I didn't have a meal plan. And so I remember you know, in college as a young Christian, brand new, still had the tags on me, uh, saying, okay, Lord, and I remember that first time going to the ATM and withdrawing $20 of that $200, and that's a couple pizzas for a college kid, you know, um, and, uh, and yet I had such joy throwing it in the plate because I was like, for the first time I felt money wasn't controlling me. God was controlling me, and it was liberating, but there was a financial risk. I didn't have much money. It did it, did, it was much easier to learn to do that when I didn't have much money, though. Um, it would be harder to learn to do it <laughs> later in life. But uh, for some of you, you gave up everything to go to seminary or to go on the mission field. You've sacrificed. You, you went from two incomes to zero asking people to give you money. I mean, that's a sacrifice. That's a, that's a financial risk. You know, uh, you know, even just buying groceries for the food pantry when you're kind of tight yourself, you know, that's gi or giving to the Mercy Fund or helping pay for your neighbor's roof repair because you know that they have even less resources than you have. Um, I think of the Christian car dealer who, who had, had, had read and even noticed in his own business that um, white men love to haggle and that white men were consistently getting their cars the cheapest while women and people of color were consistently paying more than his white male clients. And so he just, as a matter of conviction, decided that he would go to a no-haggle policy. The price that he puts on it is the price you're going to pay. And, and what happened is all the, 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 the men who like to haggle, they went somewhere else. And everybody who didn't want to haggle came and bought cars from him. And he actually did very well, but it was a risk going into it, but it was driven by his Christian conviction. Uh, when, you know, I remember one of you was telling me a story about um, before you were a Christian about how a Christian friend who was a member of this church, um, you know, had, uh, had um, been a good friend of yours and, and when, uh, and, and 
when they first told you about Jesus and the gospel, you thought it was kind of crazy, but you respected them because you had once destroyed their favorite shirt by accident, and they didn't make a big deal of it because they said, I love you more than your shirt, more, more than this shirt. And, and seeing that, that this person was not about money but cared more about people, uh, had a big impact and ultimately led you to Christ, you know? But it can be scary uh, when you say, Lord, I'm all in on your mission, whatever it means, um, because you'll have to believe that Jesus is strong enough to take care of you and that he loves you enough and sees you and will take care of you and your family while you take the financial risk of following Jesus in his mission. Jesus said, don't be afraid to Peter. From now on, you will be catchers of men. What about the risk of falling into some kind of sin? If you start inviting people into your life who don't share your faith, who don't share your values, who wouldn't do things your way, is there not a risk that they might influence you in unhelpful ways? Of course there always is. But notice what happens when Jesus reaches out and touches this leper. You know, the leper says, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. And I think he probably just expected Jesus to say, be clean. But Jesus didn't do that. Jesus could have done that. Jesus has authority over all things, including whatever skin disease this was, because they just called them all leprosy back then. It probably wasn't Hansen's disease. But, but, but these skin diseases were highly contagious. Somebody with leprosy had to live a, a completely separate life because he could never, ever, ever be touched. Or else the other person would become unclean. And when he says, Lord, you can heal me, if you're willing, and Jesus touches him. He touches the leper's leprous skin and says, I am willing, be clean. And when the body of Jesus touches the unclean one, the uncleanness does not infect the body of Jesus, but Jesus brings cleansing to the leper. You know, when the body of Christ reaches out, touch those who are unclean in the world's eyes or in God's eyes. Instead of us becoming unclean, Jesus through his body can cleanse them and his cleanness can flow and make the unclean clean. The leprosy didn't infect Jesus. Jesus' righteousness affected the man with leprosy. You see, some people assume that the Christian's calling is to get his far away from sinners as possible lest they affect you or infect you or cause you to stumble. And there may be a time and a place, there is a time and a place for fleeing temptation. But what we see here is Jesus getting as close as he can to the unclean, even touching them physically, the forbidden touch. And when the body of Christ reaches out to sinners, the body of Christ is not what's infected, but rather the cleanness that Jesus makes others clean. I remember a few years ago, we hosted a, uh, um, in our, our arts venue, we have a secular arts venue in which we mainly just serve non-Christian artists because there's so much suspicion uh, between Christians and people in the arts, and there's a wall of suspicion that, that is really high and really thick, and from both sides, we've been putting bricks on this wall for a long time. Um, you know, a lot of artists and, and, and people in theater view Christians as self-righteous, angry people who hate them. And many Christians view people with arts with suspicion. 
And, and 15 years ago, we said we're just going to do what we can to tear down as many bricks from that wall as we can so that there will be artists who will know that Christians loved them. And several years ago, we, uh, um, we hosted a, a theater company that was doing uh, a, a number of sketches of works written by transgender artists, and some of the artists themselves were transgender. And it was really beautiful stuff. You know, it was, it was not particularly controversial stuff. They were just talking about their, their experience of gender dysphoria through, through uh, 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 theater. Um, but it was interesting because uh, the bartenders were actually all of the pastors for the four showings. And the last night, um, Sam Dolby was, was tending the bar, and, and afterwards one of the actresses came up to him and said, I don't understand why you're doing this because we know what your church believes. And he's able to say, well, we're doing this because of what our church believes. You know, Jesus, when we were other, he came and loved us, and so we want to go and do, do likewise. But they had a long talk in which um, this actress shared her own hurts from the church, um, her own frustrations, and it was a long talk. And at the end, as she left, she said, I've never had a Christian leader uh, uh, that I really felt listened to me and respected me. Um, that's beautiful. We got denounced. Our own presbytery rebuked us for causing a disruption in the, the unity of the denomination as if it was any other business. But we were doing what Jesus wanted us to do, which is love people who were different from us. You know, we weren't, you know, we didn't ha suddenly have a, a breakout of memorial members transitioning, you know, but the love of God was communicated to somebody who had only experienced hostility from the church. Friends, that is being with Jesus on mission to those who need his grace. Jesus says, don't be afraid. From now on, you're going to catch people. If you're staying tight with Jesus, he's going to protect you. And his grace and love will overflow to others just as it overflowed into the life of that man with leprosy who got his life back. But of course, there's always risk. And frankly, if you're new to this, it can seem really scary. I mean, look at Peter. His first encounter with Jesus, miracle-giving power, he sees Jesus, knows what he's able to do with this miraculous catch of fish, and what's his first instinct? Get away from me! <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a sinful man! Peter's terrified, and that's why Jesus says, don't be afraid. From now on, you're going to be a fisher of men. So we give him the risk. How is it possible to live on mission with Jesus, his mission to rescue humanity. It's possible, friends, because this is Jesus' mission to you and to me. We are that leper. We know what it's like. If you're a Christian, you know what it's like to be unclean before God. It's that first membership vow to say that I promise I am a sinner in the sight of God, justly deserving his displeasure, and without hope, save in his sovereign mercy. We know what it's like to be unclean. We know what it's like to have a debt we cannot pay. Some of us know what it's like to be shunned, to be cast out, to be shut out from the life of others that they seem to so enjoy. We know disease, and we know sickness. If you think you can serve on mission with Jesus from a position of personal independent strength, you will never be able to serve Jesus and other people. It's only when we see ourselves as that leper and experience that release that Jesus gives 
that will be able to channel the supernatural power that Jesus gives us on mission. Jesus reaches out and touches the man with leprosy. The fact is, from a Western perspective, Jesus is healing all the wrong people. If Jesus were coming to St. Louis to do a healing ministry, I guarantee we would not go about it this way. We would get a committee together, and they would set up the standards and take the applications for people wanting to be healed by Jesus, and they would have different criteria in which different applications are weighed because we would want to make sure that those who are most worthy of a healing get the healing from Jesus. But Jesus doesn't do it that way. He reaches out and touches the leper. He heals the one who has nothing to offer him in return but thanks. The ministry of Jesus to you and to me, it's a ministry of grace. Phil Yancey says it this way. He says, Jesus' approach toward a decadent Roman Empire, as well as toward individual sinners who must have offended him deeply, seemed almost the opposite of the self-righteous attitude of many evangelical Christians today. He says, as I studied Jesus' life, the notion of grace kept hitting me in the face. All his stories made the wrong person the hero. The prodigal son was the hero, not the responsible older brother. Lazarus, the slave, not the rich man. The good Samaritan, not the Jewish rabbi. And I began to see grace as one of the great, often untapped powers of the universe that God has asked us to set loose. Human society runs by ungrace, ranking people, holding them accountable, insisting on reciprocity and fairness. Grace is, by definition, unfair. Michael Spencer says, real grace is simply inexplicable, inappropriate, out of the box, out of bounds, offensive, too much, and given to the wrong people. Yancey discusses Simone Weil, the French philosopher who wrote a book, she wrote a book called Gravity and Grace, which describes two different ways of approach. The world runs by rules like gravity. As Isaac Newton studied the universe, he came up with fixed rules like every action deserves an equal and opposite reaction. Athletics runs that way, as does the economy, as does politics. Stop making your car or house payments and the bank repossesses them. Bomb my country, we bomb you back. Against that pattern comes a strikingly different pattern. From God, we deserve anger, and we get love. We deserve punishment, and we get forgiveness. This is Jesus' ministry to us. We, like Peter, were the ones needing rescuing. Peter has to first be rescued by Jesus before he can help rescue others. He needs to be fished out himself before he can fish others out with Jesus. That's what Jesus did. Jesus rescued us so that he can help, so that we can help rescue others as an essential component of Christ's mission to rescue humanity. A rescue, a salvation. It's a powerful thing. It's a powerful thing. You know, can imagine if, if, if you have a child who's in a terrible car accident and they bring him to the hospital and you watch as, as your own child who, who it's, it's looking really, really bad. You don't know if you'll ever see your child again as they, wheel, as they wheel your child through those double doors into the operating theater and, and you sit there and you wait and you pray and you worry and, and the only thing you care about is seeing those do doors open back up and the surgeon, she comes out and she takes off her mask and she says, 
we've been able to save your child. He's going to be fine. That's a rescue. That's a salvation. That's the ministry of Jesus to do that to us. And, and, and if you can imagine that child afterward looking up into the eyes of that surgeon and admiring the one who saved his life, and, and years later that child is in medical school, you know, training himself to become a doctor of medicine to help rescue others just like that surgeon had rescued him. If you think, you know, you see, when Jesus comes crashing into your life and rescues you, that's what he came to do so that that would get deep inside of us. And that rescue is absolute. It was you who were dying on that operating table when Jesus rescued you. It was Jesus bursting through those double doors, taking off the mask and saying, you're going to be fine, I've rescued you. It's Jesus, the rescuer, who then places his stamp on your life and on his church as a people with a mission, a mission of Jesus, a mission of grace, a mission to bring the welcome of Jesus to all of humanity because Jesus loves sinners like me and he loves sinners like you. Here we see the heart of Jesus go back to that restaurant. You've gotten fed up. You've walked toward the back dining room and you stumble on Aria Grande and Bill Cosby and that former head of state and former dictator and, and Caitlin and Kylie and Kim and OJ and Rod Blagojevich and, and Ellen DeGeneres and Portia and the loud lady atop the chair and Puff the Magic Dragon billowing her smoke and the creepy guy wearing chaps and Will Smith slapping someone on the back and two dozen others and you turn to get their attention. You're boiling in rage, and Ellen leans one direction and Portia leans the other, and as the cloud of smoke begins to clear, you recognize one more face right across from Ellen, because there in the middle of it all sits Jesus, and your eyes meet, and he motions to an empty chair next to Portia and says, come and have a seat at the table. Friends, come and have a seat at the table of sinners meeting with Jesus. It was scandalous what Jesus did. And that's why you can know that you have been rescued because Jesus loves broken, damaged, messed up, sinful, disobedient people like us. Jesus said, I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Let's pray.